I just want to welcome everybody. Thanks so much for choosing to join us here at Table Life Church. Um, everybody that's uh, here in person, um, we have people that are online and worship, whether uh, live with us or later on this week. We're grateful to have that experience too. And um, and it's just great. Like God is doing so many great things um, uh, locally, but then also I got a chance to go to um, our like denomination has this like big meeting that happens. Well, this is like every six years or so. I got a chance to meet with fifteen thousand of my closest friends, other pastors, and people from around the world, one hundred and seventy plus countries. Um, how, I think 70 languages being spoken and stuff. I got to travel and be with them. And, um, and it's just, it's amazing to see how, how Jesus is being honored and glorified in so many places and in so many ways by so many people. And, um, and we're all brothers and sisters, right? That's what's really, really cool. And, um, so I was also thinking about um, this week, uh, back two years ago, I just can't believe it that I've been your lead pastor here at Table Life for two years. This is my moving week. I think, actually, thank you. Thank you all. <laughs> I think yesterday, I think it was like the 10th, I think that was like my moving day, and I got to meet Becca and Mike Border at the Parsonage when, I, when the moving truck came, and um, and it was just, you know, you don't know what you're getting into, right? You're just like, ah, this is great. And so two years is just amazing things. But I was thinking back to that time um, two years ago in the move. And I don't know if you've moved recently or if, like, you remember a moving experience and you probably moved at some point in your life. Um, but you discover a lot about the stuff you own when you move. You discover a lot, right? And I discovered, thinking about two years ago, um, when I was like going through my stuff and packing things up in boxes, um, one of the hardest things to pack up is not like the bathroom or even the pantry, but one of the hardest things to clean was the junk drawer. You have a junk drawer? Who has a junk drawer? Proud, like raise those hands, right? Uh, which, by the way, goes has another name. People call it the mystery drawer. Does anybody call it the mystery drawer? Anyway, you have a new name for your junk drawer. So if somebody's like, what's that? You'd be like, that's my mystery drawer, right? That's super fun. But um, the junk drawer is so hard to clean out because it just like accumulates stuff. And you're like, should I keep it? What do I do with this? Um, and so I did a little bit of research. Most of us do have junk drawers, by the way. Some of us have multiple. Some of us have a work junk drawer, an office junk drawer, a bedroom junk drawer, a, a kitchen junk drawer, a living room junk drawer. We have multiple junk drawers. Um, but can you guess the most popular things found in junk drawers? Anybody guess what the number one thing is? Over this. Pens. Okay, we'll, put, we'll, we'll give you the answers right there. Okay, number one is rubber bands. I have no idea what to do with them. Sauce packets, right? You just, you're going to need them at some point, right? You always tell you that. Menus. There's the pens. Birthday candles. Once again, you forget, and, or they're, and they're always used, right? Paper clips. And then partially used batteries. Do you save them? I, I've, I actually, before um, this morning, I had a chance to go through, and I'm like, yep, there's the batteries that, like, you know, you use for, like, two minutes, and then you're like, they're still good, right? I'm going to need them at some part. Um, and then also, not on that list is scissors, um, and you throw lots of other things in there. Um, but also, besides those kind of, like, popular things, um, there's also things that we throw in there that we have a hard time parting with, but yet they're, like, unusable, we don't use them. Um, things, for example, like vacation mementos. You know, you, you get the, the, the little clip thing from someplace in Florida, or you get a, you know, a magnet, that kind of thing. Um, old cards, 
cards that maybe you've received for birthdays or anniversaries or that kind of thing. You're like, oh yeah, that person passed away, you know, like 10 years ago, that kind of thing. You're like, I can't throw that out, right? I can't, I can't throw that out. Polaroid pictures. Remember when people used to print out pictures? Remember those days? Um, chargers of cell phones from 2010, right? Yeah, like two iterations ago, whatever. And then also, um, this is from a friend of mine, a pacifier of your child who is 40. Right? You can't throw it out. It's like, that's memories right there, right? That's memories. Um, but then there comes a time like you're moving and you have to clean the thing out. And it's like, what do you do, right? Or you're renovating your kitchen or you're moving, do that kind of things. Um, you find there's lots of things that you just have such a hard time throwing out, but you know it's necessary. It's hard, but it's necessary. And, and I just want to say this, like, like our, our junk drawers, our lives and our hearts also require hard times of spring cleaning. Our hearts and our lives, not just in times of transition when you're moving from one place to another, but there's times that we need to assess the things, the people and the places, and even the habits that we've been holding on to. Um, and there's, there's, I would say, items like in our hearts, items in our hearts that have to be sorted through and, and even thrown out at some point to make room for new desires and habits that pursue Christ, that we would be able to grow in relationship with God. Um, and, and we find as you kind of do that self-inventory of what's in, in your heart, like you find that there are some things that are not healthy. There are some things that are not helpful um, but I would say it, it's impossible, it's impossible to move to a new place in your relationship with Christ, to make room for what Jesus wants to do in your life without doing an inventory, without going through those things and throwing away things in the process. See, cleaning out makes room for Jesus to move in. Cleaning out parts in our, in our hearts and our lives makes room for Jesus to move in. You can't have one without the other. And that first step is really uh, to get ready to receive from God is to get rid of some things in our lives, to clear a space so that God can fill it with something good, with something different, with something better, with something holy. And so um, we're in this second week of our series that we're called Different, and this is a series that is uh, based on the book of 1 Peter, which is a letter, um, a letter in the New Testament scriptures. We have Old Testament, New Testament. So 1 Peter comes after Jesus, um, and it's written by the Apostle Peter to a community of, of Jesus followers. They weren't called Christians yet. They were called Jesus followers or followers of the way. And um, it, they were written to this group of people, actually like five different like churches, in the ancient world. Um, and these were people that were enduring great suffering and great persecution at the time. So this is about 35 or so years after Jesus's resurrection. Um, and at this time, uh, believers, followers in Jesus, well, first, they were under Roman occupation. This whole region of the world was occupied by the Romans. They were the ones in power and authority and had the say-so, what they passed the laws, what you do and don't do. They had people in uniform running around trying to chase people out and doing things. But the believers, the followers of Jesus, were being ostracized. They were being imprisoned. They were being persecuted and even martyred. They were killed for their faith in Jesus. And last week, we talked about this crazy emperor named Nero. Once again, not Robert De Niro. He's a fave, but, not, but his, name is, his name is Nero. And he was absolutely crazy. I mean, he murdered his mom. He murdered two of his wives. He had one after the other. And then, and then he, he just went on this frenzy. And 
what happened was the, the, the uh, city of Rome was set on fire and it was probably most likely set on fire by him because they wouldn't let him do more buildings. So he said, well, just demolish the whole thing and then start over, right? That's what you do if you're in power. But uh, Nero, Nero, instead of taking, in taking responsibility for setting the fire, what did he do? He blamed it on the Christians and said, they're the evil ones. They're the ones. So even more so, they're being persecuted. Now they're hated and they're being pursued. And so Peter is writing to these people. These people are in such a difficult position. And so what does he do? He writes these followers of Jesus, first, to remind them of their identity, to remind them of who they are, who they are are called to be. Um, And and so he he does that in order to fuel their perseverance. And that's what we talked about last week. He reminds them who they are, that they were chosen. He reminds them that they have dual citizenship, not just here on earth, but also in heaven as part of a bigger kingdom. And so he was doing that, meaning that the circumstances, no matter how painful the circumstances were that they're facing, no matter how painful they are that we can face, that they are temporary, that they're temporary. And so that's where we have to set our hope and remind ourselves who we are, not resort to what everybody else is doing, but remind ourselves of who we are and set our hope on eternity with Christ. So Christ motivates us to persevere through difficulty But then the second piece, the second piece that we're going to talk about today is not just the perseverance through difficulty and suffering and remembering our identity, but to pursue holiness, to persevere through life, but pursue holiness. So a good question to ask, what is holiness, right? What is holiness? What comes to mind when you hear holiness? Well, the first thing that usually comes to mind looks something like this. Mm, right? The holier-than-thou kind of condescending attitude, you know. The word holiness often for us conjures up images of monks and priests and nuns, people that never have any fun, right? Are anti-everything, are anti-everything and kind of walk around with like a puss on their face, right? Like, no, you can't enjoy that. That's evil. That's of the devil, right? That's all that stuff. And, and for many of us, like truthfully, we're, we've been at some point in our lives turned away from religion because we kind of see people that think they're on a pedestal. They think that they're holier than thou. And so we say that like, well, that's just not for me, right? But it's interesting. If you really look at what this word means, the biblical word holy comes from the word, the Greek word hagios, hagios. And, and it actually describes our word different, our word that we use to say different, to be different. Holy means to be different. And so a holy person is not an odd person. It's not a person that should walk around like this or not have any fun, but is a different person and a different person who is set apart. That's really what it means, set apart to be used by God, set apart to be used by God. And you might know what this is like if, you, if you're one of those people that goes around to yard sales and likes to pick up items in order to make them into other things. You know, this is the time of year, by the way. You know, you go from Saturday to Saturday and yard sale to yard sale. Well, a friend of mine likes to do such that, likes to find old items and then bring them home and then make something new. And her latest um, thing are these five-gallon buckets that she makes into these beautiful planters with rope and things. Once again, you got any line around? Like she'll take them, it's kind of like repurposing them, right? Got a new purpose. And that's really what it means to be holy. 
to take something old or, or that's, that's not being used or it's used and used up and going to be thrown away and setting apart for a new purpose, brought something new. Like, why would you go back, right? If you're made into a beautiful planter, why would you go back to the bucket life? <laughs> like, that's what it means to be holy. A holy person has a quality about their life that's unique. And, and so because of that, the content of what it means to be holy, the content of a holy life is different, is different than what it was or is different than other people and is different. And, and so that difference takes Christ seriously. But it also means letting Jesus into the closets of our lives. Ooh. Letting him into the junk drawers of our lives, Ooh, right? Opening them up and allowing God to see the junk that's getting in the way of the good things that he has for us. And the way that he wants to use us. So we're going to look at, in Peter's letter here today, the the contents of holiness. Not the junk drawer contents, but what are the contents of a life that is holy? And so we're going to continue. Um, We read uh, verses 1 through 9 in the first chapter last week. Um, We're going to skip ahead to verses 13. And so um, Peter says this. First he starts out, one of the contents is, is a different mind. A different mind. And so he says this, verses 13 through 16. It's also printed in your worship guides too if you want to follow along. Um, They're online as well on our website for those of you guys online. So Peter says this, Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, So be holy in all that you do, for it's written, be holy because I am holy. So the first content is a different mind. It's important because it starts up here, guys. It starts up here in your mind. And this is like just so important. Um, And he says, be first alert and fully sober, verse 13. So first, I think literally in a way he's meaning that don't be drunk, right? But also don't be intoxicated, but there's lots of things you can be intoxicated besides alcohol. You can be intoxicated by pride. You can be intoxicated by position, by power, by authority. So being alert and fully sober, protecting this, protecting your mind. It's so important. Um, I mean, think about it. Who, you guys, you have cell phones, right? Many of you, most of you. Um, you guys have cases for your cell phones, right? Most of us do, right? Well, if I just like went like this, there you go. Yeah, everybody just kind of like flinched for a second there. Like, I'm so thankful I have a case for my cell phone. And, you know, even so, dropping it or whatever, you still go have that moment that you're like, oh, like, is it going to break? Something not going to reset? That kind of thing. But do you know somebody that doesn't have a case for their cell phone? Don't point at them. Don't look at them right now. But um, you, you, everybody knows somebody or has seen somebody that does not have a case for their cell phone. And you're thinking when you see that, those of us that have cases, you know, you think like, you mean that you're that together and that sure of yourself that you don't have a phone, right? Like for me, it'd be like two minutes, I break the thing. Um, but, but you still gasp when you drop your phone, even if you have a case, you still gasp. Because, I mean, you think, like, how much was your phone? Like, was it, like, $500, $700, $2,000? I don't know. But, but you have a case. Even if you can get another one, you still have a case for it. But the thing is, they don't make a case for your mind. There's no case for your brain. There's no case for your thoughts. It's up to you 
to protect it because we're really walking around with a, with a cell phone of our minds that does not have a case, that is very easily disturbed and scratched and broken. And so how? How do we protect it? Well, Peter goes on to say, first, it's what you focus on. It's what you focus on. He says, set your hope on God's grace. Set your hope on God's grace. I mean, isn't it true that what you think about, what you set your mind to, isn't it true that what you set your mind to, you often see? I mean, if you've ever gotten a new car, you know this, or a new-to-you car. You start driving it, and pretty soon, everybody else, you see like 10 of them, right, in one day. It's like, because you're thinking about it. You, they probably, it wasn't like more people when, you know, all of a sudden, you're, you know, you're one of the in crowd, and you have all the popular cars. Like, no, people were driving them before you got yours, but it's what you set your mind on, you will see. And science shows us that too. Science shows us that what you think impacts a lot of things. It impacts what you see. It impacts even what happens with your body. It impacts uh, your interpretations of events. But if you focus, think about it, if you focus on what's wrong all the time, what are you going to tend to see? What's wrong all the time? You're going to see it more. What if you're constantly looking at him? What if you're constantly looking at her? You're looking, what you set your mind on, you're going to be comparing yourself all the time. You can't even walk down to get an ice cream cone without staring at everybody else and enjoying that. It's just all those things. And it's a simple practice of changing your mind, having a different mind that's setting your hope on God's grace, on the promises he's given to you. The simple practice of changing our thoughts, not resorting to the old patterns, the old ways of thinking, maybe even that somebody taught you, maybe when you were young and told you, you are not worth it, you're not enough, you're never going to be. Not reminding yourself of those old patterns, the more you do, the more they will repeat. But reminding yourself of God's grace, God's love, God's future, to take the old bucket and to make something new out of it. That's what he's doing. And that's the thing, to remind ourselves of those things, even when you're in that negative mood, even when you're tending to resort back to those places, but don't resort back to resist, to know, he's saying, be holy. You're set apart. You're different. Don't go back. Don't go to what they're doing. You're different. Be reminded of that. You're, You're different. You're chosen by God. Remember who you're called to be. And it starts up here in your mind. It starts with what you think about. Starts with those, those thought patterns. Are, are your thoughts on, on God? Do you think of God at any time during the course of your day? Or do you think more of the lies that people share with you about yourself and what's going on? What do you think? Because the contents of holiness, it starts with a different mind. But then he goes on, and, and Peter shares not just about a different mind, but then a different way of life. That's the second piece here is that contents are a different way of life for us. And he continues verse 17. He says, since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it's not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ. The precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, He was chosen, chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him, through him, you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. It's a different way of life, not the perishable things. 
He talks about like the valuable, the valuable, right? Silver and gold. You get a lot of money when you go down to the to the um, to trade those things in. But you know, it's it's about not those perishable things, but the imperishable. And he says, starting verse seventeen, you know, to to live out your time as foreigners. And we mentioned last week that identity as a sojourner, as as an alien, a resident alien, in a way, knowing that this life is temporary, and so are the things in it. And often the things that we think are most valuable are not. You learn that sometimes the hard way. You learn that when you get diagnosed with an illness that all of a sudden you can't do what you used to do or you, you lose your home in a fire. Like Things happen in life that often remind you that so many things are temporary and that should not be the focus. But then Peter, he says, living life is temporary as a foreigner here in reverent fear. Reverent fear, you know, the fear of God. Maybe you grew up in a church or tradition that scared the the Jesus into you. I was talking to some friends um, this week about um, the hell house idea, basically getting kids to come and to experience. You don't want to go there. You don't want to go to hell, so therefore believe in Jesus, right? And, And maybe you're scarred by that. I don't know what your experience. But the whole idea of the fear of God is this idea of reverent fear, reverent fear. It's the Greek word phobo. It actually means respecting the power of, not like hiding behind your desk like afraid he's going to like there's going to be lightning bolts coming down and you're going to be destroyed and that kind of thing. But no, it's respecting the power. I mean, it's like just like the phobo is when you're driving a car, you know that a two-ton piece of metal can kill you. That's phobo. So you drive differently. You drive knowing that, that that could cause harm in a way that there's respect there. Um, When you get pulled over by a police officer, right, it's not a good idea to make jokes. (laughs) You should not, you know, joke about things with the, with, with the cop. Like, you respect, like, there's a sense of respect, having, respecting the authority of that person. Um, but why? Well, he says in verse 18, why should we have that reverent fear? That verse 18, he said, because you were redeemed. You were redeemed. You were the five-gallon bucket that's going to be thrown in the trash. And guess what? God took you and brought you back, and made you into something more, and has something more for you. So live like it. Live redeemed. We've been, we've been used for all kinds of purposes, but God came and reclaimed you, and not only that, but recycled you, and put you to a new work. And the image he uses there is, the, is of the lamb. It's of the lamb. And Jesus is often called the, the lamb of God, and that's kind of a reference to the Passover lamb, the Passover lamb when the Jews would sacrifice the Passover lamb, and, and that marked the moment for them that, that God brought back uh, his people from the abuse that they'd experienced in Egypt. The reminder, remember Moses and taking the people, let my people go. And that was a reminder of how God was faithful in that circumstance. And they were given freedom, given freedom. Are you free? Have you experienced that full freedom of Christ? Are you still in prison to something? Because even if you've never walked inside a jail, a literal physical jail or prison or been behind bars, did you know that there are invisible prisons? There are invisible prisons We've all experienced in some way the prison of thinking you're not worth it and you can't do anything with your life. The prison of perfection. I have to be perfect and I have to please mom and dad. The, the, the prison of gossip that you're constantly thinking about you know, pushing people down to elevate yourself, even if you don't think of it that way. The prison of taking delight in others' failures. Yes, she didn't get it. Oh man, yeah, he messed up. The prison of, of lying, 
The person, oh, well, it's just a little white lie. It didn't, it didn't hurt her. It didn't hurt him, right? The, all these prisons of the prison of drinking, right? So many people have drinking problems and don't want to admit it, don't want to know it. The prison of overeating, that's a prison. The prison of selfishness. Selfishness, everything is for me. I, I go, I, it's me first, right? Um, the prison of people-pleasing. That's a prison. You live your life looking, what, well, I should do this because I don't want to do that because she told me this and I want to make him happy and, and you live your life. Or the prison of the desire to fit in. You know, we can be drawn back to those ways of life and it can feel stuck. And that's a prison, guys. That's a prison. And there was a, a study that was done back in the 60s, um, 1967, by Segelman and Overmeyer in the world of psychology. Um, you may have heard this when you like, took a psych class at some point or, or um, in school. But it was a study that was done on a set of dogs. You know, they did lots of studies on, on dogs. And they had three different groups of dogs. The first that they just had outside in harnesses and they just kind of sat there. The second group was a group of dogs that were given a set of electrical shocks. I don't know if they do these kinds of things today. Um, but anyway, they gave them electrical shocks. But then they taught them that they could end the shocks by pressing a lever. And so the dogs quickly learned that they could press the lever and the shocks would end. But then the third, the third group was a, a group of dogs that were given random shocks and a lever that did not work. And so the dogs, time after time, would go and try to do something and the, they would just be shocked and that, and that kind of thing. Well, they did this, this study. They did that first part of the study. But then they put all three dogs in this box at different times to see what they would do. And it looked like this. One side, um, the dog would experience a shock. And then there was a little barrier there. that The dog easily could jump over to the other side where there was no shocks on the floor. And, um, and so the first two groups, the first harnessed ones, they experienced the shock, immediately like jumped over. The second group that had been taught that they could press the lever to end the shock, they saw this, th they jumped over. Guess what the third group did? Sat down and whined. Sat down and whined. Had been taught everything's helpless, hopeless, nothing could do. Easily they could have stepped over the little barrier in front of them, but they chose to do nothing because they had learned to do nothing. They learned nothing. They sat down and they gave up. There was no hope. Anything that happened, it just was there. And, and it was interesting, the only thing that could change the way that the third group of dogs acted, the only thing that could change the way that the experimenters could change to help them respond was to show them that they could. To literally take the dog and pick him up and put him over the barrier and show him that, hey, you can make it. And then eventually, over time, they learned that they could escape the shock by jumping over the barrier. Friends, that's us. We, give, we lose hope. We give up hope. We think it's, it's the end when the whole time in front of us, just thinking and knowing and trusting that that difference is possible. There is potential and there is possibility for a different life. And it's interesting, the whole time in this letter that Peter is speaking to these churches, speaking to these people, whenever you see the word you, you know, in English, you can say you, and it can be like, you know, hey, you, Bob, like, or it can be like you, you all, you know, yous, yins, whatever side of the state you're from. But um, in, in the letter, he's actually using that as plural the entire time. He's saying you guys, you guys, like together. It, it's very interesting because Living in faith and hope, we need each other. We need each other to show us how, when we're stuck and sitting there whimpering, we need somebody else to show us how to jump over that barrier. A different way of life is possible. 
We're in this together. And that's the thing for any of us. There is no cramming for a test of faith. You don't get to choose when your faith is going to be tested, when you will have a trial in your life. It always comes as a pop quiz. And even more so, that's why we need each other. So living for God, living as a free person requires us to have others in our lives that can show us the way and where to be. So it's a little more further down the road than us. Or that can come alongside that in those times to show us, hey, you can still jump over this. You can still get through this. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be alongside you to live in faith and hope. And that's the different way of life that Peter's pointing to. And let me say this. If people think you're crazy about that, that's good. <laughs> it's a good thing. If people are like, how can you have hope? You should just sit down and die right away. Like, people tell you that. Like, maybe not in those words. But if people think that you're crazy for clinging to hope, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. It's a different way of life. But then Peter continues. He also says another content, though, is a different heart. A different heart. It's not just a mind and a way of life, but it's also a heart. He says in verse 22, he says, Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying truth, so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply. From the what? From the heart. For the heart. For you have been born again, not a perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. And for he's quoting here, he's quoting Isaiah 40, verse 1. He's saying, for all people are like grass and their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. In the first century, there's a, a, um, a story outside the Bible in some historical texts of a, a pagan man who went to report on the early Christians and visited a home, visited a gathering of Christians, visited a place that they were living and worshiping together. And this, this pagan person just wanted to do a report on them, basically, and, but to report on something bad that they were doing, something crazy that they were doing. But instead, when he encountered their worship, when he saw how much they cared for one another. Instead, what's recorded that he wrote was not a report about how weird and evil and, and off these people were, but he said these words. He says, behold how they love one another. That was his reaction. That was what he took from what he observed. But today, of course, right, we know that, you know, they will know we are Christians by our stances, by our politics, by our bumper stickers and our t-shirts, but do they know us by our love? Because love is what sets us apart. Love is that display of holiness. Love is that litmus test for Christians. And holiness means that, that Jesus' suffering, Jesus' suffering frees us, frees us from being dependent on, on other people for our love, that we can receive love from God, but then we can pass that on to choose to love first. Ask questions later, right? To love first, to choose to love first. What is the loving thing to do in this circumstance? Ask that question first. Not what we get in return, not what they're going to do. And so when he's quoting Isaiah 41, uh, he's, he's saying, well, that Israel, of course, they believe that God was like this great farmer and that his people, God's people would spring up like a great crop. But he's pointing to the fact that it wasn't about them and it wasn't about their glory because it's about the enduring fact of God's love. Because guess what? Even when you mess up, even when I mess up, even when, when I turn away and go my own way and do those things, God's love continues. God doesn't give up his love. And that's the message of Jesus. That's the message of Jesus. That's what he points to. He said, the word here, 
The word he was talking about, what is that word? That's the word of the Lord that was preached to you. It's a message of Jesus that was predicted by the Old Testament scriptures. And, and that's what followers of Jesus discovered at, at Pentecost. Pentecost, the, when the coming of the Holy Spirit came. That when they spoke to people about Jesus, something happened. Something happened. When we talk of Jesus, even isn't it funny? When you say the name Jesus, like it's so easy to talk about God or higher power, or whatever you want to say. But when you say the name Jesus, there's something that happens there. Something strange. Like you're more cautious of saying the name Jesus. And for some of us, it's because of some of the, maybe the baggage that people have experienced or you've experienced with that. But, there, but there's something powerful in the name of Jesus that the word carries something about itself, something supernatural. And that's where Peter points to a, a, a holy life also contains different words, different words. So this is, this is the, the wrap up here, friends. So in 1 Peter chapter 2, he continues in the first three verses, Therefore, rid yourself of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander of every kind, the way you use your mouth, basically, like newborn babies, Carry pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Now that you have tasted, the Lord is good. See, different thinking leads to different living, which in turn leads to a different heart, which then leads to different talking, to different words. Words have roots in your heart, and words are powerful. You know, the whole sticks and stones will break my bones, names will never hurt me. Like, that's foolish stuff. Like, names do hurt. Like, words have power to give life, but they also have power to kill. Uh, you know, you maybe at some point have had your joy stolen by somebody else's reckless words. See, Peter lists here what to evict from your mouth and from your vocabulary, things that put people down and tear them up. Instead, that we should be building people up. That's what holy people do, is that we use our words to build people up. And there's two things that influence our words. First, who you're around. Around. I was talking to um, uh, one of our teachers here who was talking about, you know, kids throwing up in school at times, if you've ever experienced that. Um, do you know there's a term for this? Um, if you see someone, if you're, that's you, like, just close your ears for a second. But if you see someone throw up, there's a word for, like, if you start feeling like you're going to throw up, it's called a sympathy puker. By the way, so, but, but it, it, just stay with me here. So, so there's, there's a piece of that, that when you're around people that are bleh, throwing up or whatever, guess what you do? Bleh. Like you do the same thing. It's the same thing. That's what influences our words. But then the second thing is what we put in. That's why Peter calls pure spiritual milk. It's not the putting in. He's not prescribing a permanently immature diet for Christians. He's saying rather watch what you put in because what you put in it's going to come out, right? And then who you're around, boo, that's going to even exacerbate that, right? So, and he uses that term milk, meaning in mind of the word of God. He's kind of playing on words about the mouth here. He's playing with our ideas that our spiritual maturity as believers doesn't come from mystical or experiential moments, but it comes from the word of God, from God's word, saying that the words go in will be the ones that come out. The, the words you listen to will be the ones that come out. The music, the people, the talking, the constant negativity even that you're around, boom, it's going to come out. So be careful. Be careful. Because to be holy is to be different. And he says in verse 3, in conclusion here, he says what he describes as our motivation is because you've tasted better. You've tasted that the Lord is good. You're better than that. 
You've tasted the better things. Don't resort to the throw up, friends. Don't resort to that. The same lips that have tasted the goodness of God are meant to be different. And that means that God wants to make you holy. Are you ready for that? What what needs to be cleaned out of your junk drawer? Is there something that comes to mind? Because cleaning out makes room for Jesus to move in. The good news, though, is that that's not something that you do alone or on your own effort. It's something that God does in you. But he doesn't force his way in. You have to make room for him to open up your heart, to open up your life, to work from the inside out. That living holy isn't the way to know Christ. Knowing Christ is the way to become holy. That Christ motivates us to persevere through difficulty and suffering, but then to pursue holiness in our lives and to do so together. So my question to you today, what needs to be cleaned out of your junk drawer? What are the the parts, the thoughts, the parts, ways of life, the the words, what's in your heart that needs a little bit of a spring cleaning? Will you be intentional about following God's direction? And will you open your heart and open your life to him? Let's pray.